Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Rushmore with the great Josh Gondelman. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Rushmore is, of course, a 1990 American comedy film directed by Wes Anderson. It's about an eccentric teenager named Max Fisher, his friendship with rich industrialist Herman Bloom, and their shared affection for elementary school teacher Rosemary Cross. The film was co-written by Anderson and Owen Wilson. And Josh Gondelman, our wonderful guest, is an author, comedy writer, producer, and stand-up comedian. He joined us earlier this year to talk about Groundhog Day. It was one of our favorite episodes. We've heard from you. It was one of your favorite episodes. So we're so happy to have him back talking about Rushmore. This is a delightful conversation. I am excited to share it with you all. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you, everyone who supports us on Patreon or supports us on Apple subscriptions. You get bonus episodes in exchange for your support. We have one about home for the holidays. It'll be ready for your ears this Thanksgiving. Anyway, we are artists. We are uh, musicians. We are authors. We are writers. We're journalists. Uh, These are all the people who are responsible for making the show. So we appreciate that you help make this our job. You pay for the vast, vast majority of our budget and make this whole thing, uh, make this whole thing a thing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Hey, did you know that we have playlists that accompany each of our episodes? They are uh, packed with songs that come to mind when we think about the conversation we had about the movie and songs that come to mind when we think about the movie itself. You can find that linked in the show notes. How are you doing out there? How's it going? Let us know on Twitter if it's still around uh, when this is in your ears. <laughs> on uh, Instagram, we're at you are good Pod on both of those. I don't know where or if we're landing on other platforms, depending on what happens with Twitter. I guess we'll find out. Uh, you can find me on TikTok if that's a thing that you're interested in. At, you know, Alex Steed at TikTok. And I think uh, those are the places you can find us right now. Let us know how you're doing. I hope everything is going well in your world. I know that we're entering a six-week stretch that is stressful for many, that is packed with all sorts of feelings, uh, good and bad. And uh, I just want to remind you that you, my friend, are good. We appreciate that you're here. If you need friends in your ears, we are here for you. Check out uh, old episodes of the show. Check out bonus episodes of the show. We would love to keep you company through this often weird stretch of time. Before we begin, I need to let you know The Peepkins is a new kids and family podcast arriving just in time for those long holiday road trips with stories full of adventure, lots of laughs and lessons galore. The show is engaging, delightful and stars the talented Anna Faris, Malik Pacholi and Diedrich Bader. Did you hear Sarah on Anna Faris's podcast not long ago, a handful of months ago? It was a delight. Anna Faris is a delight. Join quirky commander Hatch along with her fearful but determined best friend Noah as they go on adventures and lift the town's spirits, all while trying to melt the icy heart of the menacing villain Baron Von Torius. So whether you are looking to avoid that age-old question, are we there yet on your long road trip or simply listening together at home, activate your imaginations and enjoy a perfect audio experience for the whole family. Follow and listen to the Peepkins wherever you are listening now. All right, everybody, on to Rushmore. 
Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Max Fisher. I always wanted you to cast me in one of your plays. <laughs> I love this character that you just cited more than I ever have while watching this movie. Magnus has his shit together, I think. Yeah, the only one in this group that like really just has it together and knows what he wants. Today, we are blessed to be talking about Rushmore with the great, this is a great return of our correspondent in all things despondent Bill Murray. Oh. <laughs> we won't hold that against him. Josh Gondelman. Yay. Hello, Josh. Hey, thank you for having me. God, correspondent of the despondent is such a beautiful. That's so good. It's like, damn, you got to go back and sell that to Amanda Palmer in 2001. <laughs> It's so funny that she ever became as big as she did because I used to see her in that era, that time a lot at like clubs. Yeah. And to see how big she became for being a person who dressed like a cabaret zombie clown when we were kids is amazing. Yeah. And what's even more amazing is the time you were in line for bottled water and she turned to you and said, I don't know you. But I just want to tell you, I'm going to break up with Neil Gaiman on Patreon someday. And you said, what's Patreon? And I was like, let's, I'm in for the ride. I was like, take us there. Wow. It's so beautiful that you were her confidant all those years ago. Just like a friendly face in a sea of anonymous people. I have kind eyes and it really brings weird shit out in people. So that's just how it goes. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Josh, how do people know you and what is your relationship with the movie Rushmore? Oh, great question. I am a writer and comedian. Probably people know me from having written for Last Week's Night with John Oliver and or Jesus and Marrow on Showtime mm. or my appearances on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. I think people are and, and The Bugle also. I am a stand-up. I'm currently on tour and I have a new newsletter called That's Marvelous, which is a quote from The Big Lebowski that's full of pep talks, which I guess people also <laughs> know me from. A lot of credits. Mostly, I think I list so many credits because of my impression that people probably don't know me so those are all the things that people who don't know me are now learning that i've done and people who know me from one of those things are like i guess you've done other things maybe my relationship to the movie rushmore is i was like an fairly early adopter of wes anderson i remember seeing this probably vhs maybe dvd in the late 90s and then i definitely saw his next film the royal tenenbaums in theaters when I was in high school, for sure. <laughs> That's like a sure thing. And it felt like from age 15, 14, 16, whenever it was that I saw it, to present, it felt more like a touchstone than a movie that I actually revisited because Wes Anderson is such an aesthetic, right? He's become such a, a known vibe. So the early stuff, I, I remember Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic was probably my favorite as an adult, but I remember Rushmore and liking it, but more than liking it, knowing that it was a thing that I should like huh. because it felt like the right kind of signifier. And then I rewatched it probably for the first time in maybe over 20 years since I've seen the full film. And not to spoil it too much, I enjoyed it even more than I did as a teenager. So that is like my current relationship. I like really had a great time watching this again. So I saw this movie in the theater when it came out on a whim and very similar to you, Josh, I was like, oh, like I obviously didn't connect that Wes Anderson would be what Wes Anderson became. But I was like, I kind of feel like this is probably how people who 
at that point a little less Merkley loved Woody Allen's career. I was like, this is speaking sure. to me in the way that I imagine that people who like first saw, you know, like early, like, like mid seventies, Woody Allen movies were like, Oh, this movie gets me in a way that I haven't been gotten before. Like that's how I felt about this so much. And I was just like this, I get. And then over time I became friends with a, a woman named Sarah Marshall and it would appear to me. And I think that she's confirmed this a little bit. And I love all of the characters in this movie. I love Max Fisher so much. And it, it, I kind of feel like I became friends with Max Fisher in the shape of a woman named Sarah Marshall, who also co-hosts the <laughs> show. There's just like a lot there a lot of passion a lot of interest a lot of like a lot of c's a lot of c's a lot of side paths are more important than the primary path going to sort of a school that takes very seriously learning and then maybe doing some other stuff too i've had the great pleasure of becoming friends with max fisher and she co-hosts the show hello <laughs> it's true when i was in high school i was getting c's and i wrote a play about ted bundy and i directed it and it was performed by a cast of my peers and the school put it on and parents saw it. I don't know what it takes for a high school play to become a hit. I think mine was more of a sleeper, but yes, I am Max Fisher. Cult classic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, there's like elements that I identify with more. And it's also funny to say that like you, Josh, I hadn't seen this movie since I saw it in high school and I would have watched it on a Netflix DVD, probably. And yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this. And I also love that there's a tiny little Thanksgiving in this movie. I had no idea. Yeah, there is a little Thanksgiving scene, and this is going to be our Thanksgiving episode. So this is fantastically timed. Everyone has Thanksgiving alone. I think Bill Murray is like eating a turkey. He can't be eating a whole turkey leg. I feel like he's eating a little drummer like while watching his steel workers. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, do you want to walk us through the plot of the movie before we dive in substantially? Yeah, this is like one of our movies where the plot, describing the plot, feels a little bit divorced from the experience of watching it. And the plot is really very simple. Max Fisher, played by heartthrob of the 90s, Jason Schwartzman, is a scholarship student at a very fancy school called Rushmore Academy run by Brian Cox, after Manhunter and before Succession (laughs) and maybe before The Ring. (laughs) Yes. And Max Fisher is dedicated to like 45 extracurriculars. I keep saying extracurriculars. That's extracurriculars when you're from space. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's like the ET club. It's the extracurricular. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The UFO club, which he is the co-founder maybe of the Astronomy Society, right? We learned that. So it feels feels like that is his one extraterricular. (laughs) (laughs) He's got extracurriculars and a single extraterricular, but his grades are failing. And so Brian Cox is like, you got to get your grades up or we're expelling you. And he's like, I could do that. Or I could become utterly fixated on the first grade teacher at the school, Miss Cross, who's very cute and British and start wooing her obsessively and then get kicked out of school when I try to build an aquarium (laughs) on the school grounds without telling anybody or getting permission about it. And meanwhile, he is establishing a friendship with Bill Murray, an incredibly depressed middle-aged industrialist who came and gave a speech at the school's chapel and who told the students of Rushmore to get the rich boys in their crosshairs. And what was the exact phrase? 
put him in your crosshairs and take him down. And take him down. So Max really liked that. <laughs> yeah, this is a very pre-Columbine movie, I will say. Yeah, I know. Uh, back when that could be kind of a figure of speech. When you could just say that cutely in a speech mm -hmm. <laughs> at high school. Although he does shoot Magnus with like an air rifle later yes. on. Anyway, it was an innocent time. Everyone was wearing Skechers. No one knew how bad they looked. So Max Fisher fails to woo Miss Cross, gets kicked out, has to find a way to do weird picaresque activities at his new school, which he does manage to do. And then meanwhile, while trying to help him adjust to his new life together, Miss Cross and Bill Murray, Bill Murray falls in love with Miss Cross. Everyone's in love with Miss Cross. She has nothing else to do in this movie but bat away inappropriate suitors. Yeah, like like physically have to bat them off. Yeah. And yet keep her cable knits looking so clean. <laughs> and then Max realizes that Bill Murray, he's just Bill Murray, has feelings for his great lady love. And so they engage in kind of an escalatory life-destroying war with each other, which involves Max telling Bill Murray's wife that he's having an affair and Bill Murray driving over Max's bike and Max trying to crush him with a tree at his mother's grave. <laughs> it's all in good fun. And cutting his brakes, cutting his brakes. <laughs> yeah, he really wants to kill Bill Murray. It seems less serious because it's in a montage. But in that way, this is the proto kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> And it all culminates in Max arguably making peace with himself in some kind of a way and reconciling with his little friend Dirk, who I haven't really explained the role of. We'll get into it. And accepting that he's 15 and he can't have a relationship with an adult woman and noticing that there is a super appropriate love interest right there following him around town, which always happens in these movies. And then he puts on a hit play that is basically Apocalypse Now, question mark. <laughs> and he has a hit play and it's the end. And Miss Cross and Bill Murray, are they going to get together? I hope not. Yay, the end. A Wes Anderson film. A follow-up to his hit play, Serpico, from Rushmore Academy. God, the Serpico scene after they get into a fight and everyone in the cast but the guy who plays Frank Serpico bows while he's out on stage is like such an amazing, cold, inside joke drama kid, fuck you. It's so good. That's so, so beautiful. Good. I've worked on TV shows that don't have the budget of Max Fisher's <laughs> high school stage plays, for sure. He's got a guy doing pyro, it would seem. Yeah. Oh, so many explosions. Yeah. And so that's like what happens in the movie. But I feel like the experience of watching the movie, like that's like saying, what's an advent calendar? Oh, you know, it's a bunch of little doors. <laughs> With the weirdest chocolate. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, what would you say vibe wise is happening that differentiates it from just a high school romp? Um. It's a Wes Anderson movie. That's really, it's a Wes Anderson high school movie. And it's also before he got the big budget and the ability to sort of create these tableaus to the extent that we see later on. And I feel like the people are used as the tableau often in this. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I felt like the thing that really struck me this time 
is I feel the lack of budget in a way that you feel the creativity, Alex. That's what that is. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it saves him from like the twee things that I think he can be criticized for kind of, right, you know, depending on what your tastes are rightfully or whatever. But like what I was enjoying this time around or like the things that he does with that budget, like the vignettes or like where you sort of like in the opening you see in the montage, all of the clubs that Max is a part of. And like, that's kind of how we achieve this cute stuff rather than seven minute tracking shots. Or like, let's paint that whole giant building. It's right. like, well, okay. <laughs> exactly. And the, the framing device, right? Like his latest film, the French dispatch is like mostly a framing device to allow these vignettes to occur, sure. which I liked very much, especially the first vignette, the Benicio del Toro story as an artist. However, the time spent like in the office of this fictional magazine whose worlds were diving into, you know, whose stories were diving into one at a time is so ornate and so luxurious. And then in Rushmore, you get the proto version of that, which is just like every month, you see the month it is and then curtains open on the movie right and you're like i love that what are these curtains you're like oh this is kind of like we're watching their lives like a play the way max puts on plays but it's so much gentler and like every movie has transitions Mm. between scenes so it doesn't feel as heavy a decision right they're just like oh here's this little flourish Mm -hmm. and i think it's like very charming in a way that is like it calls attention to itself much less yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I love how we can see that progressing in the Royal Tenenbaums, because mm-hmm. then we get that conceit where it's like right. chapter one, chapter two, and there's like a book, which is more like somebody had to make that book, like that you can see the sort of increase in resources, but it's still not taking over the structure, really. Overall, one thing that kind of jumped out at me is that it's like a slightly precocious and twee film that is also like an indictment of being precocious and twee. Yeah. Qua precocious and twee, right? So it's like a real send up of, I think what some people would say Wes Anderson becomes later for sure. But it's definitely like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you can't just be all sizzle and no steak and have that be your ethos as a human being. I mean, that's a tremendous point. And like, also, I just want to consider that this was such a dynamic time for medium-sized independent movies not like clerks no budget and then not like you know the studio's idea of an independent movie like there was like this weird cluster of time from the mid 90s into like the early 2000s where this was possible and the other movie that i was so fortunate to see in the theater within a year of this coming out was election oh hell yeah being a sensitive person generally and being in high school is weird period but then to like have filmmakers come out and be like we see it being weird we remember it being weird in hostile and like brian cox saying that it's one of the worst that we've got when he's referring to the student or like the teachers like mm-hmm. the, the predatory teachers talking about being predators in election i was like oh like other people can see this thank god I think an experience that really feels like growing up to me is having seen these movies definitely saw election on VHS, Mm. like right when it came to video. These were like a couple of the first like R-rated movies that I, in my early to mid-teens, was like, yep, this is like how I'm curating taste. And as a teenager, I feel like I was admiring of Max Fisher's precociousness and distrustful of Tracy Flick's from election, her like kind of 
aggressive careerism and i think now as an adult i've fully flipped where i'm like admiring of tracy flick's clarity and directness and like distrustful of max's like smug entitlement and it's like a really really interesting feeling watching this movie as an adult not having seen it since i was the same age as the principal character yeah Also, something I feel like it's easy to overlook in election is that Mr. Matthew Broderick doesn't want Tracy to win because he's afraid he'll want to have sex with her, partly. (laughs) Yeah, both of these movies, as as Alex brought up, have, like, really demonstrate, like, the fucked up things that adults think about teenagers that because it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, they're just people that have their own petty resentments and horninesses and, like, they're gross and mean and, like, when people aren't around who would judge them for it, they articulate them more like nakedly. And obviously some of these feelings are like grosser than others. But yeah, Brian Cox saying to Bill Murray, like, or he's like, oh, Bill Murray goes, he's, uh, what's his name? Harvey Bloom goes, that Max Fisher, he's a sharp kid. And he he says he's one of the worst students we have. (laughs) It's like so funny that it's just like adult to adult honesty of like, oh, that kid, he's a little shit. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, I love that point that you just made about sort of like seeing who was the hero, certainly probably having a definitely gendered perspective yeah. with regard to sort of like what no was doubt. standing out or whatever. And I've certainly noticed the same about like, is this Wes Anderson being like, here's how I was and I kind of am super annoyed by how I was and I'm I'm at least aware of it or was, you know, is he presenting this person as sort of a flawed hero or whatever, but both movies have a number of adults surrounding the children helping create some explanation for like why they are the ways that they are Mm -hmm. it's like max in a way that completely resonates with my experience max is raised by an old dad in a completely feral environment he's a widow he probably just like just now has this kid that he has to he's kind of responsible for i'm projecting based on my sort of own series experiences and all of the adults in his life don't know how to or are unwilling to have like an appropriate relationship with him like election where the adults in Tracy's life are either predators or Mm -hmm. feel intimidated by her and try to like shut her down which is you know extraordinarily resonant in retrospect I guess for me at least just to kind of continue this thread I think as a teen I saw Max Fisher and I there there was a lot about the character that I related to feeling like I'm this kid, but I, I'm like a full person with human subjectivity and I have thoughts and ambitions and it's like not fair for adults to quash them because they're inconvenient or annoying to them. And that really resonated with me as a kid. And as an adult, I'm like this child is so presumptuous <laughs> and cruel and deceptive mm-hmm. and like I think those I mean to me the pivotal scene that like even as an adult made me swarm but like really touched on something as a child which is where Miss Cross really kind of like lays bare how comical and unserious his crush on her is even though he's like physically very aggressive in a like a massively yes. inappropriate way where she's like what are we gonna fuck and you're you're, what are we, you're gonna say you, we screwed and he's like that's course and she's like not if you've ever fucked before and it's like you know as like a little <laughs> you know a teen like kind of a gawky teen i was like oh this 
pierces me to the heart of like this is a way in mm-hmm. which like I I don't have a full understanding of like adult relationships and sexuality and it like really felt I felt really like small thinking about that and I still watching it yesterday was like god damn that is so withering and so right yeah and I of course watching this as a precocious teenager like I don't even remember the scene where he like forcibly tries to kiss her and watching that as an adult and as someone who's like taught and worked with not high schoolers but with you know teens you're just like oh god this is such a nightmare and you're trying to grade papers and he's sitting across from you and pouring you lemon i like (laughs) honestly the thing i felt most unrealistic about it was that like once he's shuffled off to another school she's like yeah let's spend more time together as a group yeah Max is like full on assaulting Miss Cross, like without a doubt, like that happens before this scene. And by no means am I putting any blame on Miss Cross, but there's at least one time when Miss Cross lingers a little too close to Max's face. And I'm like, I know that you're vulnerable, like from of everything that's going on, your entire situation seems like it sucks generally, like you're being assaulted and harassed by a child and a man, maybe. But like, don't lean in like that to this kid still, like still there needs to be a boundary here with regard to like how you're being. Mm -hmm. And I say that specifically as a person who had a number of like squishy boundary relationships with adults when I was a kid because (laughs) discourse as we know it was not happening. (laughs) I don't think discourse is entirely preventing that stuff. It's not, but it's certainly like the lack of it happening outside of like person to person conversation, I think allowed for people to like willfully be more unaware of their behavior than Mm -hmm. at present at the time when we're all surveilling each other all the time. Yeah, that's the solution. I love that. You just have to be constantly afraid you'll end up on somebody's TikTok when you're like touching the butt of the person you're cheating on your partner with a target. (laughs) (laughs) That'll keep monogamy in place. Yeah, it's just kind of a benevolent panopticon, right? (laughs) That's what we're talking about. That's the thing. It's like surveillance culture. A kinder panopticon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's that idea that Michel Foucault had. I think he was like, yeah, it'll be great, you guys. That the BuzzFeed guy read and took as a manual. No joke. Do you know this, no. Sarah? That what? like the guy or, or the the guy who invented BuzzFeed, Arnold BuzzFeed. <laughs> yeah, Arnold BuzzFeed, Arnie Arnie Buzzo. He was a. I don't think it's the inventor, but maybe one of the investors. Someone who ended up taking the lead. Studied Foucault at like a moderately advanced level at university and was didn't take it as criticism. Took it as a field guide and was like, oh. wow, yeah, personality quizzes. Totally. Like, tell us all your information. This is great. Let's sell you shit. What about that book that opens with like stripping a criminal skin off in public? What did he make of that one? I don't know. <laughs> he didn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> no, but it is Max's relationships with adults are like wildly inappropriate, right? Yeah, for everybody. For everybody. He doesn't understand that the adults aren't his peers, right? Right. His friends are all people that are way too old to be his peers or way too young to be his peers. He has no friends his own age for the majority of the film. And I think that's like a really striking thing that he can make himself or act like he's this figure of guidance and mentor to this younger child who's like substantially more emotionally mature and 
socially skilled than he is or that he's like a peer of these adults and he's neither and like none of it is like fully appropriate you know for a 15 year old's friend best friends to be 50 or 10 it's just like all wrong yeah and it reminds me so much of the kind of precocious teen experience where you're like cosplaying an adult for so much of your life and hoping the adults Mm -hmm. will like mistake you for one of them and then you're like these adults really welcome me as one of their own and then you look back and you're like oh they all wanted to fuck me okay yeah yeah it's really fascinating to see like how well that's rendered right of like none of these relationships are mm-hmm. healthy and then he kind of does end up cultivating this like healthy father-son relationship yeah. towards the end that like with his biological father like he kind of settles back into that because like even the way he dresses right he's at this private school and he's the only one that wears a blazer right you see him in the chapel listening to harvey bloom give his address and he's the only one wearing a blazer because he's dressing up as like fancy educated child but in the private school nobody feels the need to dress up that way because they are these fancy kids right they're these rich kids that he's surrounded by and then when he goes to public school he still dresses like that to signify like i'm different than you because i have have been to this fancy private school and he just like never does anything to ingratiate himself with the people who like not necessarily that all the children that are his age would or should Mm -hmm. be his friends but he he's constantly doing these things that like alienate himself from his peers yeah right well he has i mean he like wants a mom because his mom died and he has like crippling class anxiety huge class anxiety these are like extremely resonant (laughs) for for me Mm -hmm. at least like these are extremely resonant impulses that where it's like even as cringe and to sarah's point it's like depending on your gender or position age or whatever you look back on all those interactions and like either it's like the people who you felt like were leaning in were trying to like fuck you or have an inappropriate relationship or they were like debilitatingly depressed and didn't know how to have good relationships with people yes or if they were the kind of adult you imagine they were at the time they were looking at you with probably like some degree of pity right and so like to look back and reassess all of that and then to like cringe a little bit at how at least for me how I was as a teen in a lot of ways but then also to like have an open heart about that because like the reasons why Max is like that are like pretty heartbreaking like Max lost his mother she died in 1988 I think this came out so like 10 years before this when he was five five or six yeah I think he tells Miss Cross that he was seven when she died yeah yeah but like that also he lies a lot totally so yeah he's he's the most unreliable narrator so there's that and then just like the class thing like this person the thing that Magnus points out to Dirk where he's like yeah I'm sure he has nothing to hide the son of a neurologist or whatever he ends up saying because like Max is saying that his father who's a barber is a neurologist (laughs) which you know is like kind of adjacent to the truth right works he works on the outside of the brain yeah totally he makes that amazing joke like like a lot of people make that mistake which like Mm -hmm. seems to indicate maybe he's a bad barber He's working with sharp implements next to the brain. That's as close as you can get. I say that's closer to a neurologist than being a podiatrist is. Oh, yeah. Complete other end of the body. People come in with a head problem. He fixes it. I feel like I'm being too cruel to Max, who is a child in this film. But I think it's because I'm thinking about me at that age and like really going like, oh, I had a lot of work 
to do. Do you see these things about him where he not only has these incredibly far ranging interests, right? That he kind of dabbles in all these different clubs, but like physically he has no self-awareness right like he's constantly getting the shit beaten out of him because he tries to fight people that are clearly gonna beat the shit out of him and it's (laughs) from the time that he's like on the wrestling mat as an alternate and just immediately gets pinned (laughs) to the time where he has the fight backstage with the actor that's much like more physically substantial to him rushing magnus getting completely planted and then saying to dirk we did it like we got him (laughs) it's this fascinating like little dog as big dog energy and also the other thing that struck me about him is he has this vast sense of entitlement without any attendant privilege so he's doing these like things that the rich kids do (laughs) and then just like getting the shit kicked out of him or getting like in serious trouble for getting arrested getting kicked out of school and he's acting like he's like oh I'm gonna throw my weight around like these rich kids could but I don't have this insulation of like family wealth or status that will protect me from consequences it's so interesting it's like at that age like if you tried to like do drugs with other rich kids like you would die because they were just used to like a particular (laughs) a particular threshold of drug intake and you'd be like oh this is fine and they're like no no don't try to keep up because you'll literally die you die financially you couldn't keep pace like it's just a totally different yeah yeah if you go to jail like you're fucked forever like yeah it's a whole you don't want to do it don't do drugs with rich kids kind of like bride's head revisited yeah do drugs with townies yeah do drugs with townies that is the message of your <laughs> sounds like a shirt to me Dude, yes, mm-hmm. totally. do drugs with townies <laughs> get drugs from rich kids do drugs with townies <laughs> g-d-f-r-c-v-d-w-t it's not a good acronym that's beautiful but yeah. it takes up the whole bracelet it doesn't repeat <laughs> on that This is the shape of our Marxism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So, so with the last time we had you, Josh, we did talk about the phases. I can't exactly remember how it played out phase wise, but we talked about the phases of Bill Murray's career. And when we talked about, and like, just super quickly, like Bill Murray increasingly, (laughs) increasingly like stories that had already existed, but like more stories are coming out about the problematic nature of Bill Murray. I mean, the current phase he's in, right, is movie he was set to star in ceases production because of his behavior right that's the current phase that's hard to pull off you have to be real shitty i think to get that far do you remember seeing bill murray in this and like what were your feelings about seeing your like ghostbusters friend what about bob friend in this new context i remember the trailer for this movie really vividly and like many of the moments i do too there are some like really funny sight gags and physical gags him walking through the little kids playing basketball on the five foot hoop and just stuffing the kid is like so funny it's like such a hilarious bit and so like i think as a kid i was like there's not more of that in this i wish there were more of that and as an adult i'm like oh there is more of that than i remember like the scene during the performance of serpico there's the reverse shot of the audience and it's like grade school kids watching this gritty crime drama <laughs> that's, my fa- I, that's one of my only five notes is the kids watching Serpico. <laughs> it's so funny and so like i think as a kid i was like man this is like a little bit bleak and as an adult having seen where bill murray's bleakness like lost in translation being like such a dry movie in terms of like 
not a lot of humor, right? Like a lot of rich emotional texture, but it is like that kind of like numb depression for a lot of it. And this one, you kind of feel the depression. It manifests in like a little sillier ways still. Yeah. You're at the funny phase of the depression when you're like, I have no will to live, but everything's funny. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you get that kind of, I don't know where this is on the spectrum of this shot, but the guy immersing himself in pool sitting under the water underwater shot that's the first one i remember seeing you get it in like yeah. book smart and stuff it's like kind of a a thing now and maybe it was then too but i was just a child it's the graduate right the graduate yeah it's the first one i can think i mean we had sunset boulevard but he's dead <laughs> Yes, and also in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Who's dead, Sarah? I, I won't tell you who's dead in Sunset. Well, no, it's in the opening. The main guy in Sunset Boulevard oh, okay. falls in a pool after he gets shot by someone. Bummer. Bummer. Hey, <laughs> RIP to that guy. Bummer. <laughs> but that's, I think there's like a little more whimsy to the depression still oh yeah you even get that very broad silly montage of them at the end like training yeah, 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 to get yeah. back in yeah. Miss Cross's life where they're like with their little pipes this the <laughs> metal refinery or whatever metals warehouse that he keeps and they're running with pipes the metal store yeah <laughs> yeah because it's not he's yelling at one point about like I don't want ores I want steel so he like is a metal dealer but dealership seems like the wrong word yeah down at the metal dealership it's like Wes Anderson's understanding of industry. It's the Sparks building. It's mm-hmm. the building where they make the Sparks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also feel like, and I'm sure there's a lot of influences I'm not thinking of, but this feels influenced by The Simpsons to me, where there's so many little jokes that like aren't announcing themselves. They're just happening like quietly in the frame somewhere, and it's your job to pay attention and notice them. And I always really like that. I like it when the movie is like, we think you know what's funny, so we're not going to shout at you that it's funny. (laughs) What a terrific point, Sarah. I hadn't, I had never even come close to making that parallel, but it does feel like it functions on the same way The Simpsons does in that way. That's really well said. There were so many times where I like laughed out loud. Him throwing the golf balls in the pool like kills me every time because it's like he's doing something that like he very specifically needs to do and it's absolute nonsense, but it makes total sense for where he's at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't like Bill Murray's always looked so strange over like he's like it's great that he ever became a leading man inspiring that bill murray ever became a leading man in the ways that he did it really speaks to how much hollywood will reward you if you fill the hole left by chevy chase (laughs) chevrolet chase i feel like this is the first movie that i had seen them in that were like you know he looks like a mess like he looks like a like a person who's going through some shit like let's lean into that a little bit yeah like he looks like he gets the night sweats at any hour of the day yeah they're just the sweats for this guy (laughs) but there are so many of these like really wonderful little visual things right where it's like him promising to have a fencing team for the public school and then cut to him fencing alone in the gym while a basketball scrimmage goes on (laughs) around like truly he's in the middle of it it's like oh that's so funny another like kid audience to the inappropriate 
that happens is like at mm-hmm. the very end after the apocalypse now play there's like a close shot of the set where it's like a, a bunk or barracks or whatever and you see all the, like the nude pinups from like the 70s oh yeah and then like it pulls back and there's like two little kids from the audience like one's like sitting on the bed looking at the camera and the other one is clearly just looking at the nude pinups <laughs> it's so funny really terrific But there's so much. I mean, like, this is going to sound like the most facile, clumsy handed film criticism. But I just like things where lots of interesting stuff happens. The interesting choices, whether it's like plot or character or just visual cinematography are made. And like one of those tiny ones that I like really struck me. Max is on the baseball field cordoning it off to break ground on this aquarium that he's doing out of this inappropriate love for a teacher (laughs) and brian cox catches him and brings him into the headmaster's office and he's still wearing the hard hat and crying in the headmaster's (laughs) office while he's getting expelled like he doesn't and it's just like so funny to watch like a kid crying in a hard hat like it's like he was playing construction and got and someone had told him to stop and which is what he was doing and it's so like rich with that kind of visual texture in a way that does not feel at all overwhelming or ostentatious it's just like everything you're looking at is considered and composed to be interesting like my favorite scene uh, along those lines isn't even sort of a visual thing but it's like when miss cross is trying to have an important conversation with max about the dynamics of their relationship and the inappropriate nature of how he's being and while talking he insists on sharpening a pencil and an electric pencil sharpener twice it's so funny it's so like just like It's one of the most beautiful illustrations after a series of illustrations that show how unaware of himself he is. It's like the best and most on the nose. And how unaware of anyone else's human subjectivity, right? right? Where she's like telling him, like really laying out like a specific personal boundary. And he's like intentionally doing a thing that not only shows that he's not paying attention, but like makes it impossible to hear the words she's saying. Like it's so disrespectful. That does really remind me of my teen self in that way, where it's like, I don't know, I feel like the thing about Max Fisher as like, arguably a Wes Anderson proxy, or just like a teen boy character is that like the stuff that makes him kind of awful is all the same stuff that makes that makes you understand his heart and makes him do arguably positive things like throwing a giant dangerous apocalypse now play (laughs) yeah obviously the scope of the plays he puts on are like preposterous for a kid of that age to manage I would say, but I think there's something really sweet about him being like, I wrote a hit play and it's like, no, you transcribed Serpico, but you directed it well. You know what I mean? Yeah, very well. There's a real sense of like that Ira Glass thing about like your taste outpacing your ability at first. Oh my God, it's so well put. And that's like where Max is, right? He's like, I'm a polymath, even though he's terrible at actual math. I like do all these different (laughs) things and he's just like not good at most of them. But the point for him is that he's like doing them. Like he just has to do them. And I think there's something really like cool and compelling about that. And it's not that he's great at everything, 
even when he's trying, he's a C student, but he just is like, I'm going to soak up everything that's offered to me. And where there's no opportunity for me, I will create opportunity. That is cool. Yeah. The thing that I admire about him in a huge way is my high school career. I went to a very different high school than the one that's portrayed in this movie, but my high school career was defined by a similar not necessarily like a lack of ability, but certainly a lack of interest in what was on offer by way of the actual curriculum. But it did not suggest or imply that like I wasn't busy or extremely fascinated or extremely interested or like into a bunch of other stuff. I just was interested in 0% of what was going on in a classroom. And I was 100% interested in in every other thing. (laughs) And he's an icon of that. And I appreciate that in him. Absolutely. And like, I think there's something really beautiful about being this fascinated with the world and going like, these are the resources at my disposal and I'm not going to waste them. And in fact, what you're telling me I'm here for this, I'm on scholarship to go to this school to like get good grades. I don't give a shit about that because that doesn't matter to me. Max Fisher, a person with like boundless creative and cultural ambition. And in fact, going to class just gets in the way of playing chess and learning languages and looking at the stars and beekeeping and wrestling. And I think there's something like that's like not just precocious. He just is in touch with something about life in that regard that kids are discouraged from feeling right. Kids are encouraged to let adults set their priorities. And he just refuses that on every level. Right. Yeah. And I think that the way that we have that culture around kids and teenagers, like, is very insidious because if you're not allowed to decide in any way what you spend your time and energy on, then you're kind of set up with the elementary lessons of like what you feel doesn't matter. What feels good is bad. What feels bad is good. Like, don't trust your feelings, which is, you know, not that I'm saying that a society of overachievement helps prepare children for abuse, but what the heck? Yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's something that's a little fraudulent about him Mm -hmm. in that there's the same way as like a lot of kids, there's something a little fraudulent and adults about like how you style yourself and like want people to think of you but like especially those teen years where you kind of put on Mm -hmm. a costume and are like this is the guy that I'm gonna be and I think there's like such a tender moment with Margaret at the public school who ends up being his girlfriend at the end where she had it kind of subverts it because there's like this moment of like oh she's like the smart high achieving Asian American student and there's this conversation where she's flying a model plane and he's flying a kite with Dirk his child friend and (laughs) he says didn't the Navy want to buy your science fair project which we've seen win all these accolades and she's like no they're not interested anymore I faked it and she's like the Elizabeth Holmes of high school and it's like so (laughs) you can see like I think Jason Schwartzman's performance there is like He's so intrigued by that, you can sure, see. Totally. That's my reading of it. We're like, that's the turning hmm. point for him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> He's like someone like me. Right. Someone who is like, who just needs to make it work and needs to show people the kind of person they are and the kind of person they want to be has to be the kind of person they are. And it's such a compelling moment. It's not that her achievement 
was a turnoff to him as much as her fraudulent achievement was a turn on to him of like, oh, I yeah. get you. You're like me. You're faking it. Right. Yeah. He sees a similar character finally who's his own age and is actually interested in him, which yeah. is shocking. <laughs> There's so many like tiny little things where like just how readily he apologizes to her when she's like, you're a real jerk to me, Max Fisher. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. The other tiny little thing, this is like way off topic, but you get so deep into the movie before Miss Cross and Mr. Bloom learn each other's first names because they're only <laughs> interacting in the context of a child who calls them right. Miss Cross and Mr. Bloom. And I'm just like, fuck, that's so good. Like that like yeah. really like kicked me in the chest when I was watching last night. I was like, what a great detail that like you don't hear them ostentatiously doing it until he's like, wait, what's your name? Yeah. And it's like such a great moment of like, oh, we're seeing this whole world through the context of this child who still in a lot of ways has these childlike behaviors. Yeah. It's like starting off in a cutie bloom book and then sort of wandering <laughs> out of the margins. progressively. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he's like a little kid and like we're talking about inappropriate adult relationships and like him highlighting that he's a child is like, Bill Murray giving him alcohol when they're out to dinner and him <laughs> yeah. going completely belligerent and screaming, I wrote a hit play, which Sarah, you brought this up before, but I wanted to circle back. <laughs> Every high school play is a hit play. Everyone goes to it, especially <laughs> at like a small school. That's like what's happening in town. Because their friends are in it. <laughs> yeah. It's just like there's not that much to do. That's like my experience. Like every play I did in yeah. high school was packed. It wasn't because they were especially good. <laughs> I'd love to know from anyone listening if you had a play at your school that no one showed up to because <laughs> I imagine that would be crushing. <laughs> what I want to know is has someone had a high school play or similar that like became a sensation in the town and then became like the phantom or something? That's what I want to know. I'll also say Sarah, like you, I wrote a hit play in high school. <laughs> yeah. What was your hit play? My hit play was it's like embarrassing. It was like this very Yeah, mine's normal. <laughs> It was like a comedy where like the different fragments of this guy's psychological makeup are manifested as real people. And it was like speaking oh, nice. of former touchstone Woody Allen, it was like very much influenced by like we put on a Woody Allen play, which I don't even think was meant to be performed my junior year in high school. And it was really <laughs> informed by that experience. And I was just like, I'm going to do one of these. And I wrote it nice. and I won a Massachusetts high school playwriting competition yeah. uh, my senior year. And then we put on the play at there's like a small regional theater that's in the center of the town where I grew up in Stoneham, Massachusetts. Ah! And I, they gave me a pretty good deal to rent it for two nights. <laughs> and Amazing. we sold tickets and donated the proceeds to the high school drama club. It was like right after I graduated. And so like so awesome. in that way, that awesome. thank you. In that way, I feel so raw watching Max <laughs> Fisher. I just feel cut open and like the yeah. inside of my brain and guts are like displayed and all the things that I like was proud of affixed to all these things that like I'm not proud of and it just feels <laughs> so like we're getting we're like at an hour and it's like the fucking end of Portnoy's complaint where the psychologist is like now we're ready to start and that's like what I feel like I'm doing is like oh here's everything that's inside my brain but it is such a raw experience for me yeah well it's the thing that like stands out about him like 
I was walking yesterday listening to 90s techno. I don't know what inspired this, but I was. Sure, sure. And it just like hit me out of nowhere. Like this phrase, it's like one of those things that like the phrase hits you and then you like realize that it's a thing that you actually believe where I was like, oh, I'm like finally like brave enough to be the person I wanted to be when I was a kid. Like I just like mm-hmm. said it to myself mm-hmm. and was like, oh, that's oh, wow. that's true. That's like actually a true thing. And that's part of why I find Max so resonant is because he wants to do all of these things and he has such a hunger and an appetite and he's doing everything he can to cultivate skills but he doesn't have any ability for introspection he's not supported in being introspective Mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways he's actually that's discouraged from sort of across the board and that resonates in such a huge way for me where I felt like the same way but didn't have the skill sets and it would take me two to two and a half decades to develop all of the machinery that I needed to, to have that ambition and interest about very particular things and then have an apparatus and a compass for putting it into place. So are you going to write a hit play? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Two out of three of us have already written a hit play. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to basically redo the Godfather. Why not? I'll keep Mm -hmm. it in. (laughs) Keep it in the family. Perfect. But I love that about Max is he's just like, I'm going to be all this stuff, but I have none of the instrumentation for it. Mm -hmm. And I love that because I feel like the trajectory for most adults or like many adults is like, okay, well, I'll just like greatly lower my expectations of myself and my place Mm. in the world. Yeah. And I just have been, for whatever, I feel very blessed for whatever reason this exists to have been allergic to doing that. (laughs) But it has led a lot of the time to disappointment that I can't match up the two things. But like, I love that Max is just like, I'm going to fucking go for it. Yeah, it's like how people used to sail around the world with a sextant. (laughs) That's exactly right. When Max and Herman are in this rivalry, right? And they're trying to destroy each other. And Herman, Bill Murray, fucks up Max's bike and then chains it back to the bike rack. And Max... (laughs) cuts Herman's brakes and it's like such a vivid feel of like when you're a teenager everything feels like the end of the world and so he's like I'm going to commit murder because I'm so upset (laughs) that this guy is impeding my ability to be with this woman who doesn't want to be with me and it's inappropriate if she said she would be with me and she would go to jail by the way she would go to jail (laughs) it would be so inappropriate that it would be criminal and he is like this is the whole world and like Herman being an adult is like I'm going to he's it's inappropriate to like have a an adult child rivalry like this and then Max is like escalates it to the point of like I'm going to precipitate your divorce and then I'm going to end your fucking life and it's like I think they play that in exactly the right way where you're just like what and I think again as a kid when I had those feelings of like All I know is all there is. And then as an adult, you notice not just the asymmetry of like, well, they shouldn't actually be rivals. One is a child, one's an adult. And the way that Max is executing this rivalry is such a childlike understanding of life and death of like, this guy fucked up my bike. I am going to end him. But to your point, it's so, so beautifully said. And I hadn't even considered this as a kid. I would do something extremely banal and then something extremely death defying and tonally same thing. Absolutely. Like all rules feel like laws, right? Like disobeying your school headmaster feels the same as attempting murder because like it, you just <laughs> yeah. like, have no agency. And and that's like where he is, right? Everyone's like, you can't do that. And he's done so much that he just has no perspective on like 
almost good and bad, but certainly no sense of scale of like, this is an appropriate reaction to this because he's on tilt like a 15 year old gets and this adult is feeding into it. And it's like, Herman Bloom brings a knife to a gunfight, truly, because he's like, oh, I'm going to escalate this thing. And like a 15 year old is the kind of kid that's like, if you don't let me go see this concert, I'm going to jump off a bridge. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. a, And he has that child's sense of scale, but with like infinite tendency to be like, and I'm going to do it. Like everything I say I do, I do. Right. He, I mean, yeah. to the point of like, he convinces Bloom to spend eight of his $10 million. Yes. He's like, that's as logical a decision as any other decision he's made. Is he like, you're going to spend $8 million. And then he says, and that's all you plan to spend. <laughs> Cause like everything, like $10 million to him is like exactly the same importance as like impressing a girl he likes because he's so (laughs) young and doesn't have that inexperience right like it's the same thing as like that's a crude way to say it not if you've ever fucked before this is like the financial equivalent of that where he's like yeah this is (laughs) worth spending all your money and it's like not if you've ever like had to manage money before (laughs) this is outrageous it's like he's yeah he's he wants to be an adult or to be taken for one but he also is in that intensely childlike place of like having no idea how the adult world functions like he doesn't understand all the stage management of it (laughs) yeah and i think like max is both i think consumed by death and fascinated by and he like really really is so cruel to miss cross and the way he like wields her dead husband's name as a punishment or an insult to her but he really like understands what death does to the living right what other people's death does to Hmm. the living while having like no respect for like what could make a person die like you know that he couldn't put on (laughs) the apocalypse now play at rushmore because a kid lost a finger and then he just like (laughs) did it at public school where there were fewer regulations yeah he has a great future in construction Oh, I so like we can we talk about Miss Cross quickly because yeah. like I yeah. feel like she's a person that I have so much more understanding of and appreciation of again as an adult who's not exclusively like I love Max Fisher. <laughs> I feel like Miss Cross gets overlooked, but I love this character a whole lot. Like she's kind of just like a sad teacher who doesn't have her own house, whose husband died, who's like a great teacher and has has these things that she loves. And if you see this from her perspective, it is a horror movie. Yeah. That's the movie I want to see. Single white 10th grader. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like that or like Cape Fear. I mean, by the scope of what's possible with single white 10th grader, she's getting off easy. (laughs) I mean, like you said, this is a (laughs) pre-Columbine attitude. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I love this character a whole lot. I'm very curious about people who end up watching Rushmore and go like, these guys kind of suck. I really relate to Miss Cross. Well, it's in the same way that like we talked about Groundhog Day and it's like not fully a rom-com because you don't really like get Andy McDowell's side of the story. Well, her memory gets wiped at the end of every day. (laughs) And her like desires big picture are kind of like only presented in that Bill Murray learns about them Mm. to be more fully human. And I think like this is more a more purposeful even hiding of what she wants because this story is so consumed by the perspectives of these two men who she describes accurately as being like little children right Mm -hmm. and like we're just seeing her through that lens and then you get these 
when you get stuff that's not entirely about her, that's not entirely mediated through Max and Herman's understanding. Like when you see like, oh, she's sleeping in her dead husband's childhood bedroom, which is still decorated for a child. You're like, oh, there's so much more to this person that like nobody's asking her about. Yes. Right. And it's like all right there on the surface. And they're like, what's that? Dead husband? I uh, don't mm-hmm. really care. I'm busy cutting breaks. Mm-hmm. This lady needs a, a friend. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When you really consider what Miss Cross is going through, it amplifies the callousness of this rivalry that they have, which is like ultimately about just like two people who have specific forms of self loathing. And she's just trying to like mourn her husband. It to me, it makes her even more like sympathetic. Oh yeah, because she's out of control too. But nobody is bothered to ask her because she's a girl. Yeah, yes, Sarah. She's out of control in a way that is like inward facing. Yeah, and they're out of control in a way that's like ruining everyone's life. Right? And <laughs> she's, she's a just cat, like, and they're dogs. <laughs> yes, she's yeah. like playing chicken with feelings. It's like an act of self harm. It seems like maybe I'm out of line here. No. I mean, I I read it that way, too, that, yeah, it's like the kind of thing where you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, as you're doing it, like, I don't think like Wes Anderson is writing her as like, actually, she should be in love with Max. It's like, no, she has this open psychic wound and she's like self-soothing by like accepting this kind of Airstats comfort when she knows that it's bad for her, even at this small degree. Yeah. The thing about no one asked, right, is so explicit where Max is like, you didn't come. We built you this aquarium. And she's like, I never asked you to build me an aquarium. And he's like, would your dead husband have done it? And she's like, I think probably. And it's like, that's not the point. Like, he fully misses the point. Like, he doesn't hear what she's saying, which is I didn't ask for this. And all he wants to hear is like, you're like this man I loved. Right. Well, and so one of the things that we talk, we've talked about here and there, and I assume we have new listeners since last time we talked about it, so we might as well do it, is the whole thing that it took me a long time to learn in my life in that like the grand gesture is entirely for the gesturer. Like yes. the grand gesture is entirely a trap. That I didn't ask for this is a summation of that, but also a summation of like, I didn't ask you two to like, try to kill each other for the past hour of this movie. Like, this Mm -hmm. is not what I need. (laughs) Like all I needed was someone to be like, Oh, sucks. Your husband died. Can you tell me more about him? Um, How are you feeling? Yeah. Kind of easy, but these are two people who are incapable for different reasons of that. She went to the wrong Hallmark movie. You know how Hallmark (laughs) movies are all about being a woman with some minor issues. And then you like come to an enchanted place filled with, extremely available men she like got on the wrong train real missed opportunity that this wasn't portrayed by candace cameron from like 2018 (laughs) i know you know without anderson intending to do so like she is essentially like an excuse for all this stuff to be happening but is also given enough dimension to be an interesting character when you when you consider her alone the end of the film right it feels like Max is starting to figure out in like a slower gendered way that like what you need to do is to honor what people want, not what you want for them. Right. Like and you get that when he off he shoots Magnus in the ear and he's so mean. He's like, I would have shot your other one who blew up long ago. And then he goes, I have a part for you. And he throws in the script and he goes, I've always wanted to be in one of your plays. And he doesn't say like, 
oh, that's such a surprise. I wish we could have come to this understanding long ago. He goes, I know, which means he for years potentially has known that his greatest bully all he wanted was to be part of his play and his power was withholding that and and not putting his like magical max fisher spotlight on this guy and you see him like doing this thing that like he knew all along he could have done to diminish his own misery and bring someone else joy but he would rather have been powerful that's tremendously special yeah those little character moments are so well rendered and so evocative and there's so much done with so little in that regard the way the performances are given and the visual stuff is like clearly like oh yeah this is Wes Anderson's second film and it's like all the stuff that you know it tracks on his progression as a filmmaker but it just feels like there are so many fewer bells and whistles and it's like a stripped like it's like acoustic Wes Anderson (laughs) comparatively (laughs) well he, he makes this when he's like 28 I don't think he like falls out of favor. I just don't have an appetite for later Wes Anderson. Um, I do prefer like a little bit more of the messiness and the feeling of indiness than than anything else. But like, it's just hard to relate to people in later Wes Anderson movies because you don't feel like you inhabit the same universe. But I feel like Moonrise Kingdom was another one where like the stakes that we were presented with like fit what was happening right in the same way that mm. like Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic. I feel like what is happening is as important or as small as we're being told it is. And it's like that I can tolerate when he knows, like I'm just telling this little bitty story versus when he's like, this is a grand thing. And it's just like about a rich person trying to make the best soup or some shit. I feel like one of the correlations to what you're saying, Josh, is that like his movies are successful based on the kind of scale they're attempting to take on or the attempted seriousness of it. But also that like, maybe these are, this is an aesthetic that, thrives telling a story within a little world as well Mm -hmm. like on a boat in a school in a mansion i don't i haven't seen bottle rocket (laughs) yes that makes total sense because it's like your life is so important to you as it should be like it's the only one you ever live and so when you're like this is what's important to these people and as you were saying alex right like you think that your life is important till you're exposed to something bigger than the thing you're thinking of and like when it's just juxtaposing like here's the world and here's these people's pettiness and never the twain shall meet uh, or these people's smallness and never the twain shall meet it feels like out of whack but when you either right. see people only living in this bubble of their own experience and wanderings or they feel small in context of other things then it starts to feel more satisfying or it stays feeling more satisfying yeah so okay so we know that mr bloom is a father who in your view is the daddy of the movie rushmore sarah do you want to start us off yeah so this is max fisher's dad erasure but that's okay Uh, Mm -hmm. i think that the daddy of this movie Gosh, we're kind of in a daddyless universe again, but I'm mm. going to nominate as my daddy of this film, Dirk, the <laughs> 10-year-old who's Aww. Max's friend. Dirk Calloway. Dirk Calloway, <laughs> which is hell of a name. Checks in on Max to make sure he's been doing his homework. <laughs> Doesn't know how hand jobs work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and who is just like living in a world where every character we see is just thrashing around wildly and just trying to sort of get through it. And that's very true to the experience of a lot of 10-year-olds. So, yeah, Dirk. 
Oh. I like not because he's good because he is not, but I just love the headmaster played by Brian Cox in this movie. Mm-hmm. Who is if we're taking Daddy not uh, sexually as I often use it, and not as a as a person who has like power that they try to will, just as like a put upon guy. <laughs> His face is so perfect for this role. He's constantly like, just like looks a mess and is so frustrated at his position and frustrated to be challenged in any way by this child and is so beautifully played. I think that this is maybe probably the first role where I engaged Brian Cox in a meaningful way. And I'm glad that he was brought into my life in that way. But I'm going to nominate maybe the character, maybe Brian Cox, maybe a little bit of both. Okay. This is the hottest take. <laughs> oh. I'm going to say the daddy in this film is Max Fisher. Oh, wow. Ooh. I'm going to say he's a person who is grappling with responsibility, a person who is in charge of people often and doesn't always do a good job of it. Like he has a dad and it's tempting to say that his actual dad who's really tender and available like is a really seems to be like doing his best but it's just like max is unfatherable (laughs) he's like acting like a dickensian orphan even though he has a dad he's just like out on the streets doing whatever so yeah i think he is the one that's like grasping for control and authority in a situation and when he gets it he doesn't know how to use it which is a kind of dad i think (laughs) a kind of daddy yeah it's a very hot take because he's like so barely sexual at all. Mm. But I think that's just an alternative perspective that he is the father and author of his own destiny in a way that is daddy like. Mm. I love that. Uh, Josh, thank you so much. It's always, I mean, we've done it twice now, so I can say for sure, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Really, uh, this is, I was very thrilled to be invited back, and I had so much fun speaking with you both. Oh my God, thank you so much. That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much, Josh Gondelman, for coming along on this ride with us. We are so grateful to and for you. We can't wait until your next visit with us. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the show, for editing the show. Thank you to Miranda Zickler also for editing the show. We appreciate you both. We are thankful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the show sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you to you all who support us on Patreon and on Apple subscriptions. We, uh, we're we grateful to you. And again, you have a bonus episode coming at you uh, at any minute about Home for the Holidays. Thank you for supporting us there. Multitude handles our ad sales. If you are looking to advertise on a show like ours, we would love to hear about it. Get in touch with the folks at Multitude. You can find us on Twitter, I guess. <laughs> you are good pod. You can find us on Instagram at the same uh, the same little handle. You are good pod. And that is it for this week's episode. Next week, uh, Boogie Nights. You are good. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you.